All right. Well, we're going to be um, prepare yourself. First of all, I got a whiteboard, and that just like a little comfort thing. I just want to hug this thing. I love it. It's double sided. You're going to see both sides. It's going to be awesome. Got three pens just in case they wear out. Um, also, uh, forgive me for being dressed like this. Not that it really matters. Jesus is still going to be preached, but um, my power's still out. So you're lucky I I got dressed in the dark. And this would be like, what's with a stain in your shirt, Mike? Hey, you're lucky it was my shirt. Could have been my wife's. So um, yeah, we still have power. It's kind of interesting experience. That's why my bride's not here. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, sanctification, as I said. And so last week, I kind of gave you a roadmap. Of, of where we're headed, so you understand. And there are basically, preparatory, I think this might be spelled wrong, but preparatory, there you go, preparatory. Um, there's four different types of sanctification that we are talking about, and they all describe, uh, or at least I'm trying to describe it in relation to salvation. So when we talk about salvation or deliverance of, from sin, we're talking about layers of that experience, if you will, a journey that, that goes through a, a certain order. And these are theological categories, and nothing's a perfect formula, but trying to describe what the Bible describes as sanctification. And so we have, that pen's not going to work. We have, um, oh, that's not going to work either, but oh well. Um, and uh, I think we call this prospective or final. Okay, So there are four. Last week we talked about preparatory sanctification, and I'll explain that sanctification before the foundation of the world, setting apart before the foundation of the world. This week we're going to talk about positional sanctification, and this is the one that's going to bring you great comfort, or should. It's also deeply theological. So you see on your paper a bunch of T-I-O-N terms. I'm going to explain all those, and so you get a picture of, of what positional sanctification is, and, and we'll explain that. This one which is will happen not next week, because that's Thanksgiving week. We'll take a break. They'll come back for two more weeks and have amazing food. Again, Sarah and Susie, uh, and I think Tara made the bread. Like, holy cow, that's like amazing food. I'm expecting like, yeah, give them a hand. I'm expecting like, you know, to walk in and have saltine crackers and water. It's like a feast, and it's like amazing. So we'll... Thanksgiving, we'll have that, obviously, with our families, whoever, and then next week, we'll, or the week after that, we'll return, and um, we'll talk about progressive. So this one, this week's going to give you great comfort. This one is going to be very controversial. I say controversial in that it's going to be, um, um, it'll be good. This one's going to freak you out, okay? This one's going to scare you, actually. So this last one is when we're going to talk about, are you really a Christian, that's going to be interesting. Like, uh, We'll talk about this one. This one is about pursuit of holiness and how that actually happens. This one is about really largely God. They're all about God, but this is going to be uh, really fun. So if you take a look at the paper you have, there's a fill in the blank. So as a little teacher trick, that means you pay attention and because um, you want to know what the blanks are. And some of you will try to guess ahead and fill in the blanks. Go ahead. You probably can. All right, so... Let's talk about sanctification. So just as a summary of where we've been, if you follow on that paragraph, it says our sanctification began before creation. Okay? So we said it began before creation, before anything was created. Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? According to his purposes, to the praise of his grace, there's the purpose of everything. Okay? It's to praise God and his grace. God set apart, this is where we get this idea of sanctification, set apart a people to be saved from sin. So before the foundation of the world, he set apart a people to be saved from sin. Sanctification is completely accomplished in our souls. The little phrase in parentheses says, in our souls. This is going to be important when we're distinguishing these two. Okay? It is completely accomplished in our souls through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, increased throughout life in our flesh by the Spirit, and finally completed in our bodies. What am I doing here? In our bodies. 
Whoa, here we go. Yeah, I'm on. In our bodies at the return of Jesus. Okay? So you see a full picture. That's that full picture right there. Next paragraph, it says, positional sanctification, what we're talking about tonight. Really, this part right here. What was accomplished in our souls. Positional sanctification is a single act of God. Okay? Single act of God. That happens at one point in time. Okay? Positional sanctification is a single act of God that happens at one point in time. It is simultaneous with calling and regeneration, also known as conversion, when that which was dead becomes alive. And at that one moment in time, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We become Christians, part of God's people, in a moment. Happens in a moment. Okay? By grace through faith, we are should be placed, not placed, placed in Christ. By grace through faith, we are placed in Christ in that moment. We are in Christ. That's where we get this word position. We are positioned in Christ. We were positioned outside of Christ up to this point. By grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are positioned in Christ, and we'll explain how this all works as best we can. It is based, this placing, it is based solely on something God does. Solely on something God does. So, when we're talking about positional sanctification, we are talking about something that as the next sentence says, our role in positional sanctification is purely passive. Our role in positional sanctification is purely passive. It is something we receive. It is something, you might say, that is acted upon us. And it's passive because of this. Because sin has destroyed any desire to love God and diminished any power to glorify Him. So in other words, God has to do something. God does do something. God acts upon us because we lack the desire or the ability to change our desires or our disposition towards God. Okay, So a big question when we're talking about um, sanctification or really salvation is understanding what has sin really done to us? Like, what is, Has sin just kind of bruised us? Has sin just kind of incapacitated us? Has sin just kind of hurt us? Um, or have I fallen off a 25-story building and I'm a pile of ooze. Is that what sin has done to us? Because how you understand what sin has done to us is going to really dictate how you understand what God has done to bring you alive. He's either just helped you as you cried out to Him, or you are a pile of goo who can't even bubble up a little bubble for help. Okay, Those are very different. And so as we look at what the Bible says, what has sin done to us, it's pretty clear by a passage like Ephesians chapter 2. So we were going to have slides up, and it was all easy for you, but I guess you'll have to open your Bibles this time. Ephesians chapter 2 is a great place to start, just the first three verses, and they'll give you some other ones. And this is what it says. When we're asking the question, what has sin done to us? And we know sin has done something because if you read Romans 5, 11, and 12, well, I'll just say 5.12. It says, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, death came to all mankind because all sinned. So sin entered the world, came to everybody, and affected them in some way. And the question is, how did it affect them? 
How did Adam's sin affect all of us? Ephesians chapter 2 is a pretty good description. The first three verses, it says this. And you were, Paul talking to Christians about what they were before they were in Christ. If you read the first chapter of Ephesians, you'll see in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, a bunch of things in Christ. Get to Ephesians chapter 2, it starts to say, this is who you were, implying this is who you were when you were not in Christ. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So there's some very stark descriptions of what sin has done to mankind. First of all, it says man is dead. Now, it doesn't take a rocket science or a doctor to figure out dead men don't do much for themselves. Okay, They do nothing. They are dead. The Bible also says in the same passage that they were disobedient. That they indulged in the desires of, of their body, the passions of their body, and of their mind. It also says that they were by nature children of wrath. Okay, That's not a real positive description of mankind. The Bible will continue to say, and there are other passages, the notes will be online, will describe men in sin like this. They are enslaved, they are blind, they are natural and lack the capacity to understand spiritual things. They are hostile enemies towards God, the Bible says. They are false worshipers. So they worship creation rather than the Creator. So, we talk about what sin has done to us. We go, all right, made us dead, disobedient, children of wrath. That would be wrath from God, not wrath from Satan. Okay, You have blind, natural, can't understand spiritual things, hostile enemies, false worshipers. Okay, so put it all together. Sin is described in the Old Testament with three Hebrew words, transgression, sin, and iniquity. So sin, collectively described as this, we are broken, so that would be like, a, like an arm out of socket, you just, you're broken, you, you weak, can't, so we talk about brokenness, that's what we're talking about. You are also a, a failure in that you fall short of God's glory, Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of God's glory. So what does that mean? Well, it means even if I don't hate as I ought not, I don't love as I ought. So even if I love, my love always falls short of God's standard, even if it's, quote, pretty good. Okay? And then lastly, we're rebellious. Okay? So transgression, sin, and iniquity. I can't remember which one's connected with which. My Hebrew's not that good. Weak, miss the mark, rebellious. This is who we are. Okay? Now, then we have this thing called the law. Okay? So hopefully you've heard of the law, beginning with the Ten Commandments in the uh, Exodus chapter 20. But as you read through uh, Leviticus and the rest of the Pentateuch, you'd find there's 613 commandments. Okay? Now, the law came in, even though we were already sinful by nature, by birth, if you will. Anybody who's born has this sinful nature, who is a child of wrath, naturally. We are, yes, sinful by nature, but we are also sinful by choice. In other words, just because we didn't eat the same fruit that Adam ate doesn't mean that we are any less sinful. The law came in to basically reveal how sinful we actually were. And the Bible tells us this. The law basically revealed that we are not only guilty, but we deserve death for our sins. Okay, so we talk about children of wrath, that type of thing. So, Galatians 3 is a great place to start. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. If you ask, what is um, the whole purpose of the law? What was it supposed to do? Was it supposed to save us? Were we supposed to follow this law and, and make ourselves better? Were we supposed to uh, use this law in some way to heal ourselves? What was the purpose of the law? Well, Galatians 3, the whole chapter really, but I'll, some verses out of it I'll take. In speaking about the promise given to Abraham, 
So this is a lot of Bible history, I know, in a very short amount of time. But Abraham was saved by what? Anyone know? Faith. He was made promises, and because he believed the promises, he was justified by faith. Romans 4 will tell you that. Okay? Now, so as Paul's talking about, he's like, well, why'd the law show up then? Why, why if, if, if everything is by faith, would this law show up? So he continues in verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, why then the law? And he says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring, speaking of Jesus, should come to whom the promise of faith had been made and it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. There's much to that of what he's discussing in terms of how he resolved how he gave the law, and how he was both parties, the just and justifier. We'll get to that. I know it's confusing. But, continue, verse 21. Paul says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Do you have these two conflicting things? You're saved by faith, and, and the law can save as well? And he says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So, if the law had been given in such a way that you could obey it and become clean or good enough to be in the presence of God, yeah, they would be contradiction. But that's not what the law did. It continues and says, verse 22, But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law came in, and what did it reveal? It revealed three things. Ready? One was the holiness of God. The law is good, and the law said, this is God's holiness. This is God's righteousness. This is, this is how perfect and different than we are from God. Okay, It revealed His holiness in every sense. But it also revealed the depth of our unholiness. The depth of our unrighteousness. Because we could not uphold the law. Though the Pharisees pretended like they could. Right? In fact, Jesus even told His disciples, look, your, your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees. And they're like, dude, Pharisees, they're like mad moral. They're like awesome. Like how could we ever, they like study, they memorize it. They seem to obey it perfectly. How could they have laws on top of laws, on top of laws? No way. And then the Pharisees come and like, boom, haven't committed adultery. He's like, but I bet you lusted. He's like, right? And he's like, guilty. I didn't murder. That's the law. But did you hate your brother? You murdered, right? So he goes, he shows those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, everyone is a sinner. Everyone has unrighteousness and unholiness. Everyone is unworthy to be in God's presence. Everyone deserves death. So the purpose of the law, as good as it was, and it is good, was to show us we needed a Savior. So three things. God is good. Man is bad. You need someone to save you. Okay. That was the purpose of the law. And so, the law provided, and this is part of its goodness, and I wanted to show you a video tonight, um, and I'll put it online. It's from the Bible Project. If you haven't seen the Bible Project, I'll show you a couple of videos. You should write it down. Some guys in Oregon, I actually think we're going to support them as a church. A couple pastors in Oregon have made these amazing little five-minute videos on books of the Bible, and concepts. And the one I wanted to show tonight was on the atonement. And it talked about the idea of what the law provided and what Jesus does, as we'll talk about here. Particularly, the law, the good law, the awesome law, provided temporary atonement for the badness of men, for those who were God's people. So there was nothing special about um, lambs. There was nothing like they're all stinky, they're, they're ugly, they're unruly. But God has said, I will accept this as a substitute for your sin. And so the law provided a temporary kind of solution 
to allow men to be in God's presence in a sense. Not in a full sense, but in a sense. And all of that was pointing to what John the Baptist called as Jesus walking by, there goes the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Okay, Who is going to truly and finally and completely atone for all the badness that the law has told you that you are and how short you fall from God. It's going to make you what you need to be. So, Adam, first Adam, was representative of man. And his representation was of disobedience. Okay, Romans chapter 5, verse 18, tells us this. It says, therefore, as one trespass, so truly all men were condemned at Adam's one trespass. But the law still showed us how many other trespasses we were also condemned for. So it says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Okay? So, what we have here, and I'm running out of space, but I'm going to go ahead and erase. Doesn't it look fun when teachers erase a board? I always think it does look fun. You think I'm weird, but I think it looks cool, and you kind of want to do it. I know you do, but you don't get to because I'm a teacher. All right. We believe in this big word. Ready? This is what this video would show you. Substitution. I think I'm going to spell it right. I rock. Atonement. Okay? Substitutionary atonement. Big word. This is what we're talking about. Okay? The law provided a substitute to atone for our sins. It was a temporary atonement. It was one that um, was intended to lead us towards Christ, which will be a permanent atonement, so that we could be in the presence of God. I hope you realize that's the point of all things, is to be in the presence of God to His glory and for our joy. Now, substitutionary atonement is this idea. Ready? Here's the gospel in a very theological way. Jesus stood before God as our representative or substitute. He stood before God as our representative. And he assumed responsibility for two things. Okay? That does say responsibility. It's difficult as it is to believe. Okay? He assumed responsibility for two things. Anyone know what they are? Want to guess? That's one way to say it. Our obedience and our disobedience. Okay? So, he assumed our responsibility to obey the law perfectly. Okay? This is what we are supposed to do. Unable to do. We are sinful by nature and choice. He assumed responsibility to basically do that perfectly. This is why it's super, super important to say Jesus is sinless. Okay? He never sinned. In what sense? In accordance to the law. He was not born with a sinful nature, and he did not sin in accord with the law or relative to the law. He also assumed responsibility to render the penalty for our disobedience. Okay? Because what we need is more than just innocence. And we'll talk about that in a second. We can't just not have disobedience. We have to have obedience. We can't just not have unholiness. We have to have holiness. hope that makes sense. So we need both. This is why it's so important that Jesus is God and man. He has to live a perfectly sinless life as a man to represent what men should have done, but his, in taking the penalty for disobedience, one man can't cover the sins of the world potentially, right? You need an infinite depth of blood, at least if it is value, to cover sins. So Jesus has to be God, and he has to be fully man. Not half and half, both. 
Ooh, it's a lot of theology. I know. We're going to be theologians this church. Let's move forward. Now, Romans chapter 8. You should memorize Romans chapter 8. You should read it every day. You should think about it a lot. Fantastic chapter in the Bible. It explains this concept, then I'm going to break it down in the fastest of ways, and you are going to freak out. Romans chapter 8. I bet you could say it, Mark. He's got it memorized, at least a lot of it. I tried to do it, and I really did poorly at it. Romans chapter 8 says this. Listen to the words very carefully. In light of what I've said about righteousness, unrighteousness, obedience, disobedience, the law, sin, all that stuff. Put it all together. There is there found no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So this is what we're talking about. Remember, we said positional sanctification means we have been placed in Christ. Okay? There is therefore no con- now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Check out verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay? Well, what did that say? That told you what happens when you trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe that God, the Son of God, took on human flesh and entered and basically took your place. You want to know the gospel in four words? Here it is. Jesus in my place. There's the gospel in four words. In these ways. What happened? He came and he took responsibility for all my disobedience, my death, and he created righteousness and he gave it to me. He did what the law was designed to do that we never could do because we're so blind and enslaved and fleshly, but he did and he gives it to us. And we are placed in Christ and we put our faith in him. Basically, we recognize that we can't save ourselves and that God did all the work necessary, and we are just to believe. See, the gospel is not advice on how to get better. The gospel is a declaration of what God has done, and it calls us to believe it, period. And when we believe it, we're transformed. That's when we get to progressive sanctification, but we'll get there more. Now, question is, what happens when we believe that? 2 Corinthians 5.17, I think, gives the best description of it. So from thou um, from now on, therefore, well, that's 16, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right? There's that word again. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So this isn't an improved version of Sam. This is a new Sam. Sam is dead. Sam died on the cross with Jesus. Sam was buried. And new Sam was raised in Christ. Now, what does that even mean? And this, my friends, is, I think, the key reason why Christians lack joy in their salvation. What I'm explaining to you. I'm convinced that when you lack joy in your salvation or when your spirituality feels dead, it's likely because you have disbelieved some aspect of the atonement. Now, we don't often break down aspects of the atonement. So those words on there, you're like, I don't even know what half these words are. I know. But they're important because they tell you what it means that God made you new. What does it mean that am I supposed to feel new? Like, what, what, does, that, what does that mean? Well, let me share it with you. I love this whiteboard. It's glorious. All right. This is just what's written on your paper. And I want to go through each one in like 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And it's going to be super fast, so pay attention. All right. This is seven aspects of the atonement. Okay? Seven different pieces of it, layers of it, 
all of these things happen in a moment. All of these things happen when you trust Jesus as your Savior. When you're placed in Christ, this is what it means. All of these things just, boom, done. But our failure, I think, to meditate and to praise God for these things is the result, as I said, of spiritual deadness or spiritual lack of joy. First and foremost, redemption. Okay, This is seen, I'm going to give you a verse, and I'll probably read some of them, but I'll read most of them. All right, Ephesians 1.7, so you want to write down the verse, and then I'm going to give you a little uh, explanation. Redemption is, and again, these are going to be very simple definitions. I'm sure there are huge books written on each one of these, but simple definitions. Redemption is the rescue of a sinner through the payment of a price. It is the rescue of a sinner. They are redeemed with a redemption price. Okay? Ephesians 1.7 speaks about this in relation to being in Christ. It says, Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. So the price of our salvation, the price of being in Christ, was the blood of the Savior, which is very sobering, as I often say, to know that your sin was so messed up, your life was so broken, that it required the sacrifice of the Son of God to atone for it. So we should never minimize sin because it was very expensive to deal with. We don't talk about grace like, hey, <laughs> saved by grace. Grace was costly. It didn't cost you anything, but it cost God everything in a very real way. And so the idea of redemption is hugely important. In him it says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. When we, I think the best way to describe this, and there's others, you could say, I am bought, I am rescued, or just, I am important. There's a value to me. God sees me as valuable. When we fail to believe this, the idea of redemption, not only will we cheapen grace, but I think that we will actually feel quite lost. And that's a pretty good description of a non-believer who doesn't see themselves as valuable, doesn't see any meaning in life, doesn't see any purpose to what they're doing. When you see the Lord pursuing you and saving you by His sacrifice of His Son, you understand your importance, you understand your purpose, and you do not feel lost. Jesus becomes a hero and your life is not an accident. That's huge. He doesn't redeem everybody. You get that? We talk about before the foundation of the world, He set apart people and He redeemed you. He called your name. That's huge. And when I fail to believe that, my love for the Lord changes. Okay? It, wasn't just, um, an ex- it wasn't just a monetary payment. All right, I'm going to pay this money. I'll take you. It's like, I'm going to pay with my own blood to save you. And that changes everything. Second part, justification. Okay. Now, many people will um, call this positional sanctification. Like, positional sanctification is justification, and it's a major part of it, but I just don't think it's the complete part. It is a major part. Justification is a uh, legal act where God declares the sinner to be innocent of their sins. So think of it as a judge. and In this case, the judge is the one who has been sinned against. And it is a legal act where God declares the sinner to be innocent. It's not that the sinner is now sinless, it's that he has been declared sinless. Now, Romans 5 is uh, probably one of, let's see, Romans 5 1 and 2 and then verses 8 and 9 as well talks about this. 
It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But God shows his love for us that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more will we be saved by him from God's wrath. While we were sinners, Christ died for us and justified, declared us innocent by his sacrifice. I am innocent. And you probably can figure out when you fail to believe this fact, this truth, you will feel guilty. You will sit in the guilt of your mistakes and the guilt of your sin. And in order to alleviate yourself of the guilt, you will work to try and pay off your debt and try to prove that you are innocent. And this will only lead you to become a legalist. And there's only two outcomes for a legalist. Anyone know what they are? Pride is one, and that's if you feel like you succeed. Like, I made this law. I'm pretty good at this law. God, you owe me. I rock. Aren't you glad I'm on your team? Pride. The more common one, despair. Because we all fall short. And so you spend your days feeling guilty for everything you've done and feeling like a low-down, cruddy Christian. And you beat yourself up and you go, oh, my work's not good enough. Or, my work's good enough. When Jesus says, your work isn't good enough, but you're innocent. And the goodness that's going to come from you is coming from me. I'm justified. We sit in our innocence. We rejoice in our innocence. But there's more. Okay? Um, number three is propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation means... This is the turning away of God's wrath through an offering. Remember Ephesians 2 said that we were children of wrath. It is, um, many people will define justification as, uh, it's just as if I didn't sin. I think if you understand propitiation, you understand it's actually justice satisfied. It's not that you haven't sinned. There was someone punished for your sin. It just wasn't you. Propitiation is the idea of the satisfaction of God's wrath by Christ. So, the judge didn't declare you innocent in this way. He didn't stand up and go, all right, you know what? Um, let's just forget it. Move on, and no worries. Just don't do it again. No. He said, you are innocent, and I'm going to punish him for it. So, Justice is still exacted in order to uphold God's holiness. But you are not the one who is absorbing that wrath. Christ is. He is propitiating the wrath. He is, I love to call it, the wrath sponge. He takes the wrath of not just your sin, but the sins of anyone who might be saved. Romans 3.21 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Right? The law, they, they point to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, different things, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be two things, the just and the justifier. He might uphold His holiness and be the one that does it. The one who basically... Solves the problem. And what's the problem? 
how does a holy God love unholy people? So God is both holy and loving, but if you're holy, you've got to punish sinners. But if you're loving, you've got to show mercy to sinners. How do I do both? His son comes in, and God becomes the just and the justifier, the one who punishes himself for our sins, and the one who demonstrates love in doing that by showing mercy to those sinners who deserved it. See, it all works together. Crazy. All right, propitiation. When we forget propitiation, the fact that I am forgiven, that says forgiven, believe me, that wrath is actually satisfied, that there's no future punishment coming. Okay? That's what propitiation is. When I forget that that's truth, I live in fear of future punishment from God. And I also live fearing that all the bad things that happen in my life, that must be punishment for something bad I did. But First John tells us that there is no fear in perfect love. Perfect love casts all fear. There's no punishment that's coming. And so any, any difficult things that I feel like are from the Lord are actually loving discipline, not punishment. Things have changed. We will wrongly believe if we forget about propitiation that God is punishing me when I do bad things or when bad things happen as opposed to a loving father who is disciplining one he loves. All right. Expiation. Last couple. Well, no, we're not last couple, but we're getting there. All right. Expiation is the cancellation or removal of sin. Okay? Expiating something, cleansing something. The verse for that one, I don't have. <laughs> I don't know why I don't have it. Well, we'll get that to you. It's something in there. Think about this, right? We still have a bunch of sin that's there. But expiation is the idea, and it works with this one together. Maybe that's why I didn't do it. It says, I am clean. Okay? I'm clean of the sins of my past. Because what happens if you forget that God has actually cleansed you of your sins, not just declared you innocent, right? If he just declared you innocent, what will we sit and think? Well, you don't know what I've done. I mean, I'm glad you forgave me, but you know who I really am, right? And we sit in our dirt, and we allow our past to define us. Even though we're forgiven, even though we're declared innocent, we go, yeah, but you forgive, but I know you don't forget. We're the ones who don't forget. God is the one who says, I'm clean. He doesn't want us to live in shame. And when you forget that you've been cleaned of your sins, you will live in shame about the sins you've committed. Imputation works along with this. Imputation is a word, and I'll write it down. It's the idea of um, when a thing is reckoned or placed upon a person. Okay? So, we know this has happened three ways in Scripture. One is, Adam... And his sin was imputed to all his descendants. Okay? So he sinned, Romans 5, 12 says, because sin entered will through one man, death through sin, death came to all mankind, because all sinned. Through Adam's sin, his guilt was imputed to us. Okay? In the same way, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. So the righteousness that we need to be in the holy presence of God has been imputed to us. This is part of justification in a very real way. That's why they always include it often together. Same way, our sins have been imputed to Jesus. Okay? So Adam's sin was imputed to us, and we have our own sins we add in there. Jesus' righteousness was given to us and my unrighteousness was placed upon Jesus. Okay? 
What does that mean? Well, it means this. You're not just innocent. You're not just forgiven. You're not just clean. You're not just brought back to neutral. You are made righteous in Christ. Now again, we're talking about positional sanctification, so that means we are made righteous in spirit. We're made righteous in the soul. We know in our flesh, we're not all that righteous all the time. But in the soul, we are. We stand before God in spirit, holy and blameless. And someday, what we are in position in Christ is going to match what we are in practice in the very end in glorification. And so we have imputation that has occurred. Romans 5, again, I think I read this verse, 17 and 19, says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By the one man's obedience, many were made righteous. There's been imputed. I, have, I stand before God, not just innocent, not just clean, but actually righteous and loved as Christ is loved. Now, I am righteous. I am a saint. When I forget or fail to believe this, I begin to feel that my acceptance is based off of my obedience. And that my rejection is assured by my disobedience. When you forget that you are righteous, and again, they work together, so this works with adoption. You will believe that you have something to actually add to your salvation, your position in Christ, to make God love you more or less. Now, without doubt, this is where people go, oh, um, and this is where we'll talk about in the next week, progressive. Do I really need to ask for forgiveness of sins? And I would say there's a huge distinction between your union with Christ and your communion with Him. In the same way that um, when I sin against my wife, she is not going to divorce me, but things are not going to be enjoyable in the home and in our relationship. And so there's an intimacy there that needs to be resolved that doesn't talk about our union together. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about our communion together. And so we understand positionally I am righteous. There's nothing I can, I can do that would cause God to love me more. And there's nothing I can do that would cause him to love me less, but he's still grieved. He's still grieved by my sin. I may not be condemned by it, but I'm still grieving him. My wife may not throw me out of the house and divorce me, but she's still going to be grieved by how I sin in our relationship. So you see the difference? Okay. So we do need to sit in the fact that we are righteous in positionally in Christ, and that should bring us comfort. That should bring us assurance. And when we forget then it's dangerous. And it's connected with adoption. The last two. Adoption is um, basically that we are, um, I'll put family, but we are made a child of God. And the best verse, uh, there's several, but Galatians 4, 4 through 7. We are basically, adoption is being admitted into God's family. We are adopted as his children, and we are made joint heirs with his son. Joint heirs with his son. Okay. You think about the concept of adoption. You think about um, children not adopting themselves to families, but families coming and adopting them. If you've adopted children, you understand this. You enter you may pay a price. There's many things that happen, but you embrace and love this child, and this child becomes part of your family permanently. It's not as if they go, well, here's the list of things. If you do, we're taking our last name from you, and you're out. 
They are adopted forever. They are welcome to the inheritance, if you have any, that they will have, right? They are family forever. And just as we have children that are not adopted, but any children you have, you love them unconditionally, still grieve by them, still want them not to sin and all those things, but your love for them doesn't change. It's not affected by what they do. You are in the family. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to pay the price, so that we might receive passive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Okay. So, all these pieces, and again, if if you if you forget that you are family, your relationship to God will feel like employment. And you will fear losing your job if you are bad enough or not good enough. Like, the gospel is supposed to change your relationship with God from boss and judge to father. It's a relational term. We understand why God uses relational terms to describe himself. Because he is a relational God. He intends to have relationship with us. And he wants this unholy people to be able to be in his holy presence. But in order to do that, he had to send his son so that that was made possible. Last thing is really, we probably should put progressive on here, sanctification. And this is the idea that even though we are adopted, even though we are, are uh, declared innocent, declared important, declared innocent, declared forgiven, made clean, made righteous, made family, we can still grow. This isn't God adopting us over and over again. This is not God declaring us innocent over and over again. That's been done. This is us growing up and maturing in Christ. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I said in the very beginning, in a moment, sanctification is completed in our souls. But it's not completed in our bodies until Jesus returns. And it, that which happened at our sanctification at our justification, all these things, that grace can increase. And I believe that increase that increase does change our bodies, does change our behavior. But it begins with belief. It doesn't begin with changing behavior, and that will cause us to be loved and we'll believe differently. As we believe differently, we begin to behave differently. The gospel begins to transform us. And what was passive in positional sanctification is not completely passive in progressive sanctification. We'll talk about that. What does it mean to be in Christ? Just listen to this. To be in Christ means that God chose me before the foundation of the world to save me knowing every sinful attitude or action I have had or will have. He showed me grace. He chose me. He made me alive. He caused me to see. He enabled me to understand spiritual things, and He filled me with His presence. In Christ, I am irrevocably a child of God, forever forgiven of my sin, cleansed of my sin, and filled with the righteousness of Christ. And even though God loves me like His Son in the Spirit, He is committed to helping me look like His Son in the flesh. Catch that? Even though God loves me like His Son in the Spirit, He is committed to helping me look 
like his son in the flesh. And nothing I can do or nothing that I fail to do can change my position in Christ. God loves me not because I'm lovable, but because we are in Christ. It's important. That is life-giving. That should be comforting. And I'll close with this, which will lead us into the next session in a couple weeks. There's a very disturbing verse that I'm going to read to you that you probably have heard before. In 2 Corinthians 13.5. And what it says is examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless you indeed fail to meet the test. Woo! We don't like that verse. How do I know if I'm in Christ? How do I really know if I'm in Christ? And so, I don't know if I wrote these down. I don't think I did, but I'll give you... um, Seven basic questions, and you just ask yourself, and I don't need to ask you them, but I'll ask ask yourself these ideas. And the question isn't, how do I know if I'm in Christ? The question is, how do I know if I'm new? How do I know if I'm the new creation that the Bible talks about? How do I know that if I really believe these things? I believe that when you talk about a new creation, that your behavior changes, I think, in time. And sometimes instantaneously, but I believe our attitude changes immediately. Our disposition towards several things changes immediately. So I think here's some good questions to ask ourselves. Number one, and I, I think these questions exist or came from that Who Am I book um, from Jerry Bridges. And so I stole them and modified them a little bit, but pretty much the same thing. Number one, what is my attitude toward God? What's my attitude toward God? Is he a father or is he a boss? Do I look as him as one I'm dependent and accountable to or one that I just appeal to every now and then? Two, what is my attitude toward sin? That's a huge one. Notice I didn't say, do I sin? What is your attitude towards sin? Am I concerned about it? Am I indifferent toward it? Do I have new desires? Is there, according to Galatians 5, a, a war going on in my flesh? Or as Romans 7 talks about, I, I see my body doing this, and I don't want to do it. Is that there? Because that's a sign of a new creation. New desires are the sign of a new creation. What's my attitude towards sin? Three, what's my attitude towards failure and success in relationship to God? And I've said this before, and I think it's an amazing question, and that's this. When someone asks you how your walk is, when someone asks you what your relationship with God is like, where does your mind first go? Does your mind immediately go to what you have done or not done? Or is your mind drawn to Christ? Because your successes or failures in Christ are completely different than your successes or failures outside of Christ. If I'm in Christ and I fail, guess what I'm embracing? My forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. And if I succeed and I'm rocking it out, it feels like, where's my mind going? Am I boasting myself? Am I boasting the Lord? Four, what is my attitude towards Jesus? I think R.C. Sproul asked a great question to someone who had said, I'm not sure I'm saved. He said, what is your attitude toward Jesus. What do you mean? Do you have any affection for him? I don't mean admiration. I don't mean respect for him being a good teacher. Do you have any affection toward him? Do you have any appreciation of him? Do you have a desire to see him? Do you trust in him to save you? Five, what is my attitude toward God's word? you have an affection for God's Word? Do you view God's Word as a rule book from a cosmic killjoy or loving instructions and encouragements and promises and warnings from 
Father. What's your attitude towards God's Word? Last two, what's my attitude toward prayer? Do you see God as someone that you need to talk with? That you need to hear from? That you need to commune with? Someone that you want to commune with? People are like, why should I pray? Like, okay, well, do you want to talk with him? Why should I read the Bible? Do you want to hear from him? Lastly, what's my attitude toward other Christians, and particularly the church? Do I appreciate being with them? Do I appreciate learning with them? Do I appreciate knowing them and being known and growing with them? Is my identity in Christ connected with my identity in the church? Am I one of those people that say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church? Well, you don't really understand how much Jesus loved the church. What's my disposition towards other believers and brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I see them as brothers and sisters that I need and are needed by me? So when we talk about testing and new creation, we're asking, what are our attitudes? What are our heart attitudes there? What are, even if the behavior isn't there yet, what are the desires? Because that is a sign, I believe, of the grace of God and someone who has deep conviction in the truth that I'm telling you about. Belief in the gospel. Okay. I think... That is it. I will say this. As we, um, as we get into progressive sanctification, I feel like there's a contingent of people that are asking the wrong questions, and we'll deal with some of those. And they're related to this, but they're also related to what we'll talk about next week. Um, questions like, does God see my sin? Does he view me at all? Does he see me just as sinless and that's it? He never sees my sin? And again, that talks about not whether he sees your sin or not, he sees it. But what's his disposition towards it? Is it one of grief or one of wrath? And those are different. Um, do I have to ask for forgiveness? That's one that's come up. Should I have to ask for forgiveness? I mean, I'm forgiven. Why would I ask for forgiveness? Well, why would you ask for forgiveness from your wife or your spouse? Union versus communion. We'll talk about that. Do I have to pray? And when people ask those kind of questions, I just kind of go, um, well, why wouldn't you? Why, should, why wouldn't you not want to pray? What is your relationship to God like? Do you understand your adoption? Do you understand what it means to talk to your father? Or do I have to work? Do I have to work? Okay, technically, no. But why wouldn't you? In response to the work of Jesus Christ, why, why wouldn't you? In response to the promises that work promises, why wouldn't you? In response to the warnings that God gives to those who don't, why wouldn't you? Like, there's, a, there's other questions to ask. And I feel like sometimes we're so trying to figure out, like, what don't I have to do? As opposed to, like, what do I get to do? What do I get to do? So I'm going to pray. I'll be up here if you have questions. I'm sure there's a ton. That's a lot. I'll put my notes up so you can see like all the mistakes I made, and then you can um, embrace. My hope is as you sit in your positional sanctification, you understand, we talk about next week, the whole idea of um, obeying to be accepted. Um, we don't obey to be accepted. We are accepted, and therefore we obey. And we're going to talk about what obedience looks like in a couple weeks. So we don't get those mixed up. When you get sanctification, and we'll call it justification, or progressive and positional mixed up, you think that your position is dependent upon what you do. Nope. Your position is secure, and it inspires and motivates you and empowers you to do. That's what we're talking about. Okay? I'm going to pray. Father God, thank you so much for teaching us. I pray that you will continue to uh, show us the depths of your grace and that we will grasp how much you love us, that we will know all that you have done for us not obligated to us in any way, but desiring to be with us. That just blows my mind. I pray, Father, that our position in Christ will be secure and assured, and it will inspire us to be a people who pursue holiness. Thank you for the patience of everyone who's here. I pray you will teach us uh, past this night and on to next night. Give us an affection uh, for your word, an affection uh, for prayer, and a deep affection for one another. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Go in grace, peeps. Just so you all know, there are leftovers, lots of leftovers, so if you'd like to take some home, go back to the kitchen and grab some. 